there is a massive amount of institutional bias towards inertia that becomes unfrozen in a CFO transition. And it's not helpful bias. It's not positive bias. The fact that 90% of last year's budget is correlated with next year's budget over long periods of time is a material problem. So this concept of making space for some bold bets, I would say it's even more than a great opportunity. I think it's a must do. From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. You just heard Andy West, the global co-leader of our practice, articulate just one opportunity that new CFOs can seize. Today, we'll talk about a number of others, along with the seven mindsets and practices that can help new finance leaders make the most of their early tenure. Joining Andy are the co-authors of the recent McKinsey.com article, Starting Up as a New CFO, along with a special guest. Andy is a senior partner in our Boston office. Andy, thanks for being here. Thank you, Sean. Glad to be here. Ankur Agrawal is a partner based in our New York office who leads our CFO and capital markets practice in the Americas. He's also a member of the McKinsey on Finance editorial board. Ankur, great to have you here today. Thank you for having me, Sean. And next, we have Christian Gruva, a partner in our Munich office who leads our CFO and capital markets practice across Europe. Christian, thanks for joining. Thanks, Sean. It's great to be here. And last but not least is Lauren Cooks-Leviton, the CFO of FAIR, a global wholesale e-commerce marketplace. Lauren is also on the board of publicly traded cosmetics company, Elf Beauty. Prior to joining FAIR, Lauren was the CFO at the online retailer, Fanatics. And earlier in her career, she also co-founded Moxie Capital, a private equity firm. Lauren, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for including me. Happy to be here. Awesome. Um, Lauren, you became CFO at FAIR about two and a half years ago after heading up finance and online retail company, Fanatics. How did those two transitions compare for you? Thank you. Uh, There's very different paths to becoming a CFO. And I would say I had a fairly untraditional path to my first CFO role, which was at Fanatics back in 2015. My route included investment banking, equity capital markets, equity research, stints as an investor and, and multiple stints as an operator. The one common thread for me, though, was sector, and that was consumer, retail, and e-commerce businesses. So there, while it looked a little bit uh, maybe haphazard or not necessarily planful, the one, the through line was on on sector, and that's where I was building expertise. Uh, I leveraged that sector expertise ultimately into a strategic CFO role, first at Fanatics starting in 2015, and then at FAIR starting in 2019. That's awesome. Um, And we're really keen to hear more. But before we do, to set some context, Christian, what would you say were the highlights of your research on CFO transitions? Yeah, probably the first message is, right, um, the average tenure of CFOs are declining. We are talking about five years on average. And retirement rates are also up um, since uh, 2019. And what's also interesting is that we see a strong trend specifically uh, in the ratio of um, female CFOs you know, since um, 2000 or so. Um, That has picked up um, quite drastically over the last um, couple of years. And we also see a similar, let's say, um, development for um, CFOs with ethnically and racially diverse profiles. This um, share has more or less than tripled. So there's a strong, let's say, momentum uh, in the CFO community across many dimensions. And also, if you have a look into what CFOs probably also do after uh, their role as a CFO, took a look into um, the transition into CEO roles. And also just, you know, for you as a bit of a, um, of a background, the share of CEOs who had 
CFO roles or finance roles in their career is picking up. That's true for um, CEOs who were CFOs in their own organization. So in that sense, it looks like uh, whatever CFOs are doing, uh, the role, the activities, the projects, the initiatives they are driving, um, that somehow qualifies and prepares well for a CEO role. Thank you, Christian. And for new CFOs coming into the role, where do you think they should place their focus? Ankur, do you want to take that? Yeah, I think I would start with a little bit of this theme about the seminal nature of the transition moment. I think it's an inflection point for any executive to move into a new role. But for a CFO, it's an important moment because he or she is in a spotlight. And the spotlight is not only of the internal organization, but also of external stakeholders. The investors and the investor community watch very closely the, the, the CFO role and also the boards. And um, when we talk to the board, they, they actually say they wish the CFO spend even more time with them as they transition into their roles. Beyond the traditional audit committee and some of the more you know, direct uh, influencing points with the board and inter interaction points with the board, the boards want to work with the CFOs because of their independence, because of their uh, data-driven insights, and because they are at the core of so many of the initiatives that companies drive in, they want to be able to partner with the board, um, with the CFO, quite deliberately. So that's an important sort of aspect of transition of external stakeholders as, as we think about the transition moments. And I would underscore a couple of points which Christian, you made uh, around the rising tide of diversity uh, and inclusion in the CFO roles. But I must say there is still a lot of room to go uh, in, in finance. Uh, and, and there's a lot of opportunity for diverse profiles to be uh, developed along the journey of CFOs and the mid-levels, mid we see the diversity quite relevant, but there is still a gap as we think about CFO roles. So we should not call it victory. There's a lot of, lot of room to grow. And this transition about CFO to CEO is an important dimension too, because it's this the way you transition into the CFO role also sets the tone for your future professional development. So it's a little bit of an inwardly, inwardly looking message which is how you, do, how you transition matters to not only the company you're driving and leading, but also to your professional development journey. So who you, who you partner with, who you sponsor, who you mentor, uh, and, and what network you build around right from the get-go dictates how you will how you'll probably pro progress in your professional development. I think it sort of sets the stage of the importance of, of the transition moment. And on that point about early interactions with the board, Lauren, how did you manage your relationship with the board during both of your CFO transitions? Yeah, I think I'll talk about the relationship with the board at FAIR as opposed to Finesse, because I think I did a, I had a different approach with the FAIR board. I'd met many of them during the recruiting process. And then after I joined, I, I did intentionally spend time with each one of them individually and ask them what their expectations were, what they wanted in terms of frequency and the nature of our interaction. Uh, so I was much more planful around that. I, I hadn't done that at Fanatics and I think that was was a missed opportunity. There's a few of them, including our audit chair, that I have monthly one-on-ones with and use that time how, you know, how I see Fit, but also make sure I, I cover anything that's important to them. Um, and so I, I do think it isn't a one-size-fits-all solution. There's there's different 
expectations and different desires on the part of various board members. Remember, they're really busy. They serve on multiple boards. They have different levels of commitment and different levels of expectation. But I think seeking out their specific input and expectations was 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 really helpful to me, and I think it built a, it started a strong foundation. That's interesting, Lauren. Thank you. Did anything surprising come out of those initial discussions you had with your board in terms of maybe their expectations that you might not have known going in? I think the biggest learning was just how unique viewpoints and expectations were. That this was not going to be a one size fits all solution. We weren't going to have this. I wasn't going to have the same relationship with each one of them. It was going to be more. Uh, custom built. And then I'd say the other might not be that surprising, which is they allocate their time, particularly investor directors, and we're a private company. And so we do have a board that's composed more of investor directors than outside directors who come from business. And they're they're in triage mode, right? So they're going to allocate most of their time to the portfolio companies that require more of their time. And so you know, part of my goal is to not be one of those companies that they need to be triaging. That you know, don't be don't be one of their problem companies. Or one thing, the other thing I would add is for those of uh, that are on, or anyone who's thinking about making a transition within their existing organization, I think this concept of getting to know the board uh, is an important one. And obviously, the audit committee and the chance to present and be in front of the board in a pretty tactical way is certainly something that finance executives may have the opportunity to engage in. But more broadly, you know, how are you thinking holistically about your image with the board or your chance to engage or to show maybe more CFO like skills as opposed to technical finance skills is something because there aren't so many at bats. So that may be one as people think about the transition or maybe being a candidate for a CFO. I found it often quite helpful for my clients to begin building those relationships purposefully, right, uh, over the course of years, because there are only so many board meetings, there's only so many opportunities. So Uh, Just one reflection on my part. Thanks, Andy. And Lauren, how should the new CFO manage that board relationship without creating tensions with the CEO in terms of what each communicates and to whom? I think it's really critical that not just the CEO and the CFO, but the whole leadership team is really aligned on how you communicate, when you communicate. And as part of any recruiting process, I would make sure that that kind of um, open relationship and consistency of of how to share is established going in. I think I would add two things, Sean, to this very important question. I think CFO is independent for sure, but it is part of that executive team. It is one team. So I think it is quite important to sort of recognize the context that said, I think if you think of this board calendar and how it is set, I think this I think there is an opportunity for CFOs to be more proactively involved in shaping that calendar. It should not be quote unquote left to one individual, right? So the one team concept and how do you really showcase the progress and performance of the company? I think the CFOs can be more proactive. And this point about board and board influence, and I talk to all of my clients who are CFOs. I think being on the board, there is no substitute to learn and, uh, you know, be yourself on the board. And I think that's an important part of their professional development and understanding the dynamics by being part of the board is also equally important. I agree. I think any opportunity you get to be on a private company board, a public company board, a nonprofit board, 
is a, is a great segue to the types of interactions. Like I, I, I get to wear different hats. I'm on a board of a public company. I'm on a board of a private company. I've done nonprofit board work, but then I also interact with our board as a, a part of the leadership team. And I think having those different roles allows you to have better perspective on what works and maybe what doesn't work as well. Thanks. Um, we've seen a lot of evolution in the CFO role that CFOs have certainly had to step up to help manage crises, for example, in recent years. Have you seen any lasting change in the type of role that CFOs play in such situations? I know, Anker, you've written uh, a fair bit about this, and we can include a link to your uh, recent articles in the show notes, but maybe you can start off by sharing your perspective. I think I would welcome Laurel's comments, but I don't think the role has changed in terms of crisis management or communicating the crisis. CFOs have a responsibility of risk management broadly. Of course, it 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 varies by sector, and the definition of risk changes by sector. But the value creation equation, which the CFO really drives, risk is a big part of it. And in that context, CFOs are responsible for elevating those risk. Uh, framework and and implications to the board as part of the audit committee or even part of the broader board, board discussions. In terms of crisis, COVID was a great example recently, where the, the the frequency of communication and and the interventions the companies were taking, the CFOs were at the forefront of communicating those to the investors as well as to the board, and and I think that was quite deliberate and required as part of the role. I agree. COVID was the, the the perfect storm, perfect test case for this. Ultimately, you know, I think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and you know, apply that in a financial sense. And you know, what would your most basic expectations be as a fiduciary in a company? Well, it would be to not run out of money and to be able to you know continue operating and and, and fighting to live another day. And so, I, I do think that the CFO is in times of crisis, most responsible for figuring out and being very clear-eyed and rigorous in identifying, you know, what are those worst case scenarios? And I think for almost all businesses over the last few years, the way we do scenario planning, frankly, just changed. It used to be, you know, your downside case had some adjustments to your uh, core assumptions but you know, we, in, in the case of FAIR, all of our customers who are independent retailers, they were legally prohibited from operating in the early days of COVID. That is just not something that you would have had in your normal scenario planning in the past. The, the th- thought that every retailer would be forced to be shut, it's just not something that would have been on the table. And so I, I, I do think in crisis management, um, being very quick to react, but also to think about the most essential things. And, and that was what we, we, we spun straight into is like identifying, was there ever going to be any situation where we would frankly run out of money? Uh, and I, I think there were CFOs all over the, all over the world, frankly, who were, who were asking that same question. And, and, and I think became the most, um, most pivotal members of the team because they were the ones closest to being able to answer that critical question. Thanks so much all. So let's now kick off on the mindsets and practices that you lay out in the article. What's the first element that you identify and describe in making a successful transition? Yeah, so we do one or two transitions every week and 
between Andy, Christian, and I, we speak to CFOs all the time. And you know, based on the transition moments, we sort of wrote about what makes a transition successful. And of course, this is not comprehensive, and each context is different. But we thought, uh, you know, some of these are quite relevant. And I'll start with the first one here, scoping the challenge, which is all about having an independent point of view on the value creation thesis of the company. And I would argue this starts well before you even accept the job or you're, you're sort of transitioning into the role. And you need to have a point of view and a very strong point of view, uh, data-driven on what will move the needle for the company. And I think that will probably be the driver for whether you get the job and then ultimately be successful in the job. Importantly, in the first few weeks or so, successful CFOs who transition uh, uniquely point out their ability to have an independent fact-based assessment of the business. Uh, looking at granularity, the data in the business, not being bound by the the past performance of the company and say, look, really, if I dig under all the rocks and take a very independent point of view, what does it, what does it really tell me? Because it's a unique moment for, for CFOs to have that freedom uh, to, to really do that. So it's quite important to have a point of view to really understand what challenge you're accepting and therefore you can steer, steer the right way. And what Lauren shared really struck a chord here on scenarios, having a point of view of both the upside scenario, obviously, but having a point of view on what could be the worst case scenarios as well and what risk mitigation needs to be in place. And not only to manage risk, Actually, CFOs tend to be well-known to manage risk, but areas where the company should deliberately take risks and uh, is uniquely positioned to take risk as well, so having a perspective on risk as well. So that, I think, is the foundation of a successful transition, having a point of view of the challenge ahead, having a point of view of the value creation thesis in the company, and being fairly granular and deliberate about what opportunities and challenges you see. One other question that comes to mind is how much of that scoping should be done actually before you even take on the role? And Lauren, what was your experience in your transitions? I actually believe you can do a lot of pre-work, but until you are truly embedded in the organization, having the opportunity to really embed yourself, ask a lot of questions, meet a lot of people, understand processes that exist today, that it will be hard to truly scope it. Uh, and, and I wouldn't, and to me, it's become this part of a, a 90 day plan. It's not a going in plan. One of our core values at FAIR is to seek the truth. And often this means looking for disconfirmatory evidence. And so you can't do that until you're literally inside and, and under the hood. The other thing I would say is I think that as a company grows, what I've found um, is that very few people have a true 360 degree view of the whole company. And so they're making decisions about the full picture. They're making decisions specific to their function or their division or their part of the business that, that they are, are overseeing. But the CFO needs to have a much more comprehensive lens. And so I, I think it would be premature to try and truly scope that challenge until you've had the opportunity to to build your mosaic based on the inputs you get from all the various people that you meet on your original uh, journey through the company. You know, I'm just going to pile on one point that you made, Lauren, because I think it's a real trend. This seems like an obvious point, but I think it's a moment 
right, to really take a fresh look. And I think right now is a very, very critical moment. One, for the point you made, which is around being holistic. The amount of data that's available in your organization is just becoming exponentially greater, period. And that's not financial data. That's always been somewhat available, right? But we uh, often at McKinsey think about holistic impact. So how do you layer the employee lens on? How do you layer on your ESG lens? How do you layer on your customer lens? From most publicly traded organizations, that data is becoming increasingly you know, available to your investors. How do your employees really feel about you? What does your attrition actually look like? How is attrition related to your GNA expense, right? So as you make the transition, understanding that the world is thinking about not just the financial numbers, but the impact of all sorts of metrics on your performance, I think is going to be increasingly important going forward. And at the same time, a fresh view helps you recategorize and redefine industry and performance. I do see the boundaries of industries in many sectors starting to erode pretty aggressively, right? In terms of how you're defined, how you're defined in the market, how do investors view you? So I think this scoping the challenge is more than just getting comfortable, right? And setting a bold aspiration. I think it's true. But I think also for new CFOs, the world's going to be very, very different. And it's a good chance to establish what that difference is going to imply for your your role and for your organization. So first, we've got to get a clear read on the scope of the challenge. What's what's the next one, Christian? Yeah, that was a perfect lead-in to um, the second um, habit. Adopt a bias for action, as we call it. Um, one of the classic questions we discuss with incoming CFOs is where to focus and what to do in the first, let's say, 100 days. Is it more kind of uh, working on my own function and making sure that, you know, my finance function is in good shape? Or should I also take a much broader perspective and think through, let's say, value creation for my organization? And we see that many successful CEOs also, you know, take a broad look at this kind of value creation agenda. And they specifically also look into, you know, how the future dynamics of the industry might shift. So what's going to be my industry logic, not today, but probably in five years from now? And how will this change in the industry logic impact my performance and the performance of my company? Um, you see that in automotive, right, where business models are dramatically eroding and moving and uh, updating and changing. And we, of course, also saw that, you know, um, during the pandemic, when some of the new incoming CEOs made some courageous, you know, transformational moves. Some of them needed to do so. Some others basically um, grasped the opportunity. And um, we also see that and this is a very um, interesting, um, let's say, example for the digitization efforts that many CEOs are leading. While we have been discussing, you know, digitization of the finance function for many years, now many CEOs also start thinking through how the digital skills that they have actually built up um, during this kind of transformation journey can be applied outside of the finance function. So I think the key takeaway from that kind of um, second habit is really having a very open mind when it comes to value creation, not limiting yourself to your finance function only, because the the data, the capabilities you bring actually allow you also, you know, to drive a very strategic value creation dialogue with your board and uh, your investors and your whole team. And, 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 and I think, Christian, if I may, each and every CFO I speak with was transition and I talk to them, let's say, uh, one year into the journey. Many of them, most of them actually say some of the decisions are obvious about mm -hmm. their own team and they're waited to take those decisions. So I think this bias to action also is about the team you set up and what decisions you take and being purposeful around them 
early enough, I think is equally important. And there is a hesitation because you don't want to rock the boat. Uh, but, you know, almost everybody I speak with say in hindsight, they should have moved faster. Yeah. I would think that adopting a bias for action is something you'd want to do throughout your tenure, though. So what's different about this bias for action when you're actually new to the role? I think if you are new, right, um, you have the liberty to challenge much more um, of what you find. You're not part of that system in that sense, right? So also, I mean, um, Anko made a very valid point about, you know, how do you want to change um, basically your team or where do you want to change your team? The other um, topic, of course, is, you know, um, as a new CFO, new in the board, you actually can ask some of the tough questions that have not been asked. You can address the elephant in the room. And you also have, you know, probably um, the liberty um, to do so, but also the mandate, actually, because, um, you know, a CFO is um, part of the relocation journey of any organization. So in that sense, uh, it's more an obligation, I would say, um, and a commitment that you need to give to your uh, fellow board members. So you don't want to let the transition go to waste, basically. Exactly. I call it the new kid card. Like, don't waste your new kid card, because that's when you get to ask just open-ended questions that you truly don't know the answer to. At some point, your new kid card, I think, expires. And when you ask the question, people actually assume you do know the answer. Um, but I, I think that I, I distinguish between one-way doors and two-way doors. There's certainly, um, you know, having a bias for action is relevant throughout your tenure. But some actions, you, know, you, you really can't reverse them. And I think for me, that's a that's a framework that that is very helpful to step back and say, uh, you know, I, I want to do this. I think we need to do this. What are the consequences? What could what could go wrong, and and can they be reversed? I think we have a principle that rigor and speed are not mutually exclusive. And sometimes, if you really are going to get to the right answer, that's going to require iteration instead of just more and more analysis. And I, I think that's something that. Oftentimes, finance teams, in particular, um, have struggle with 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 that that the notion that there isn't a right answer that you actually are going to have to iterate your way into something. Awesome, thank you. Um, so, what's the next principle, Anker? Do you want to take us through it? Yeah. So, if we move forward, I think we touched this notion about bias for action. It is it's linked with boldness and bold bets. Um, successful CFOs, at least the ones which we have seen, really do purposefully think about and create opportunity for bold bets, both in terms of their own role, but also moving the organization. And there is, um, you know, this notion, Lauren, you said about one-way doors. I think having a quick view on what those one-way doors are, if you're, you know, if you're able to channel the organization into few of those one-way doors, that's a unique opportunity in a transition moment. Those could be you know, divestiture opportunity of selling a business or exiting a business, which the organization may have angst over years, and you bringing speed and rigor in those decisions could be one of those actions. And then more importantly, being able to communicate that as a moment of your transition with the board and the investors and, and the executive team is quite important. The second is also bringing this notion about small bets as well, which is how do you really get some of those speculative uh, ideas on the table, which may have come come up in the past, not evaluated or not have been resourced. So how do you really get some of those small bets on the table as well? 
So getting this purposeful notion about moving the business with few bold bets and small bets so that you're really driving the role forward and bringing resource allocation to the forefront of your uh, journey. And again, you can argue this a CFO should do throughout the transition, but this is a mo throughout the role, but this is a unique moment in the transition to set the table for the st strategic agenda from the unique lens of a CFO role. And Uncle, I'm just going to put a sharp point on it, right? Which is um, there is, and there's a lot of work you can see uh, out on McKinsey.com on bias busters and corporate decision making and capital reallocation, right? This is a topic that we spend a lot of time thinking about. But if I were to boil it down to a really, really simple concept, there is a massive amount of institutional bias towards inertia that becomes unfrozen in a CFO transition. And it's not helpful bias. It's not positive bias. The fact that 90% of last year's budget is correlated with next year's budget over long periods of time is a material problem. The fact that there's no systematic way to look at your business portfolio and challenge some of those decisions, right, typically as part of budgeting and strategic planning is actually not necessarily a good thing. So this concept of making space for some bold bets, I would say it's even more than a great opportunity. I think it's a must do for many organizations for a variety of reasons. I just wanted to put an exclamation point on this one because I think it is a very important moment for performance. And so are the abilities to take these bold bets and, and this bias for action, are they constrained in any way if the new CFO is also new to the sector, for example? Yeah, I, I think, Sean, I have an opposite view, interestingly, which is if you actually come from a different sector, you can overcome the inertia which and biases which Andy actually talked about. Not that you should sort of blindly lead into a decision, but I think using your lack of knowledge of a sector in some way to ask the tough questions and ask the right questions because you're not shackled by the, the, the tradition of that sector, I think is an important opportunity. I work a lot in healthcare and I hear from all my clients, healthcare is unique, healthcare is very different, you can't do anything in healthcare, etc. But I've seen a couple of CFOs who have come into the role from technology or consumer goods background and have said, okay, why can't we be more patient-oriented and what would it take for us to be patient-oriented? And not that you need to necessarily make a big bet, but you can use your use your lack of sector knowledge to be the, the, the bias buster in that context. And I think that's what I would encourage. I think there's no, of course, um, you need to learn a lot more of the sector as well. So it's an and but I personally see it as an opportunity, not an obstacle. So that sounds like another advantage of Lauren's new kid card. But what about for those who advance to CFO from within their organization? Any tips on how they can adopt that outsider view and still ask the tough questions, even though they came up from within? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I don't think I have a silver bullet here, Sean, but I think the, this, this notion about embedding de-biasing techniques throughout the decision-making process which the CFO actually drives. So whether it is a budgeting process, and I work with a consumer goods company where the CFO actually uh, asks the team to present not where they have not met the budget, but they are actually exceeded the budget and have a deliberate dialogue on what it would take to exceed the budget. So that's one example of embedding techniques to surface opportunities which will challenge the conventional wisdom. So budgeting is a process. Performance management is another process where CFOs play an active role. Large capex and large M&A decisions, obviously, is another area. So if then you have an incumbent as a CEO with a strong views. If you can have processes 
I'm assuming the organization is mature and has established processes. If you can create some of these techniques so that you can bring external voices in, I think that can go a long way. I, I agree with Ankur's comments that uh, there's no reason why you can't still try some new things on. Just because you're if you're new in a role, somebody thinks that you belong in that role, which means you shouldn't be doing it just the same way as the person who was there before you. And I think it becomes a matter of personal style, knowing what there. You know, I think there's there's a range of um, potential outcomes within an organization. I don't think it, you know if there's a certain style that you'll be able to move it. You know, three standard deviations, but you can move it a few. That's why you're there. And I again, I think that there's still a new kid card, even if it's within the same company. You, you've been brought into that because there is an expectation that you're going to be able to do something that wasn't done before. Awesome. Um, Christian, let's move on to teaching and translating, which I think is the next mindset. What does that mean? Yeah. Teach and translate, um, number four. CFOs are also, let's say, great communicators, right? You basically engage in dialogue with the CEO and the board and the top team, specifically also on the financial impact of strategic decisions. That's actually when typically um, CFOs have a say in order to, you know, also show the uh, trade-offs that you might have when you have two um, separate strategic decisions like, you know, a large M&A deal or a make or buy or a divestiture or kind of a transformation program. And um, here CFOs, on the one hand, are, of course, you know, clear experts because they understand the concepts and the implications probably the best. But they also need to find a way to communicate it in a, uh, in a, in a easy, um, understandable way so that their C-suite peers really get it and also then probably act in the same way that was intended by the CFO. Um, and we saw that, um, I mean, Lauren was uh, alluding to that already, we saw that um, uh, during COVID, right, that probably cash um, for the first time in many, many years were, was kind of a concept that was of interest, not only for treasury experts and the CFO, but also for the broad kind of board. CFOs are probably the only ones or a very uh, part of a very um, small pool who can really distinguish the drivers of performance. Um, so how much of the performance we show, uh, you know, in our records is really the effect of skill and hard work, how much is actually just driven by industry tailwinds or some kind of accounting magic, right, or to some extent, pure luck. So in that sense, um, CFOs can take this kind of, let's say, um, honest view on the performance segment that a bit and also you know give their board and their um, uh, their team actually a clear guidance on you know how good we have been and where we can do better and that's also very important for um, many um, investors because they spend um, a lot of time I was just remembering a, a discussion I had with one of my CFO clients who was so um, uh, impressed by the sheer amount of time that uh, one of the large analysts spend on his data, right? And how much they somehow uh, dig deep and try to uncover and um, reveal basically the key performance indicators. Uh, and he was saying, I never do that myself, right? So um, I get a series of tough questions actually by these kind of analysts. Um, and um, she really spent time and also to, let's say, upgrade her communication because um, the way you communicate also outside of the company to investors um, basically is also, um, you know, creates a lot of 
I would say confidence um, in the organization. So um, CFOs who can go deep, not only report numbers and let's say, um, but also explain the numbers, explain the drivers behind that, explain the strategy and how that links to the numbers, um, you know, are very well regarded um, by the investment community. And also by that actually, you know, get a lot of, um, let's say positive feedback and also support uh, on their way um, uh, as a CFO. Sure. Thank you, Christian. So the next mindset is being proactive about risk. And that seems to be naturally in the wheelhouse of any CFO. So what's different or what's the different lens for a new CFO? I think we touched upon it already. I think in, in Lawrence's remark and the questions you had posed, Sean, before about be proactive about risk. It goes without saying that, you know, risk remains an important part of a CFO's role. And the transition is, again, a unique moment where you can be more proactive, setting the tone for how you will sort of approach this question of risk. Um, I was with a CFO recently uh, in the healthcare context and cybersecurity and, 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 and technology risk are becoming really, really important because they, are, they, are, they have a very uh, important investment in some of the technology businesses and the risk framework they've used doesn't work. And they, that CFO leveraged the transition moment to completely redesign and think through how they will communicate risk across the organization very differently. And and then the crisis moments, of course, uh, is an important dimension of risk. And I think that's probably an area where CFOs can do more, which is where should you take more risk? Uh, and, and probably the risk mitigation aspect of the CFO roles comes for, at the front, but not many CFOs put some energy on where should we take risk? And that again is a unique moment and probably where cyclical and long capex cycle industries have more opportunities, uh, there you have to make big capex bet uh, because of the future outlook of the industry, where the CFO role again becomes quite important and central. Um, so I think that's the notion about risk taking at the moment of or, or educating and understanding risk at the at the at the transition moments. Got it. So uh, let's move on to number six: uh, thinking strategically about ESG. So for many, many CFOs, ESG, um, especially for those who come new into the role, right, ESG is kind of a reporting topic, right? I need to report score one, two or three numbers, but it's much more. Um, and if you approach this strategically, it can be a real, let's say, lever to de-risk the business and also to drive up performance. Um, because interestingly enough, if you ask people, um, uh, they, say, they tell you that, you know, ESG programs will have a huge impact on shareholder value in five years from now. Um, but if you then ask um, a second question, you know, what's gonna be the, the real driver and unlock, um, there is less kind of uh, clear view. So CFOs actually can play and should play a key role, right? In helping the board and the CEOs to understand, you know, whether and how and to what extent an ESG related initiative um, can have an impact on the performance of the organization, uh, on the market cap, on the strategy. And it's again, a, a perspective on value creation, linking basically strategic concepts and ideas with real numbers and data, and actually somehow translating that into kind of a simple understandable concept like, you know, market value uh, increase or networking capital and uh, uh, NPV, or any kind of, let's say, um, classic financial number. And CFOs also use that um, in order to um, communicate even more effectively with the capital market. 
So um, the new and the upcoming, um, you know, accounting standards um, allow you to report in much more granularity to your investors what you actually do, you know, what kind of ESG strategies you are pursuing. And that, of course, gives a, a, a good opportunity to also link that back to the value creation story um, uh, that you want to tell to the capital market. Um, and in that sense, I think, you know, um, taking ESG not as an additional burden in terms of reporting, but actually using that um, in order to, you know, position yourself and your company um, uh, for the future is probably, uh, you know, a mindset that many CFOs are currently trying to um, apply. Hey, Christian, I would just say just two, two really quick comments on that to build on that. I think one, if I just look at, you know, over the last year, the way that investors are looking at ESG, there, there's a bit of a subtle question of whether executive teams are taking it seriously. A CFO's role and the way that they present ESG and their command of the facts are a very clear leading indicator, right, of whether you're on, on top of it. And largely because you can back into some very expensive commitments Right. If you're not actually quite careful and thoughtful about how you're allocating capital, how you're thinking about sourcing energy, how you're thinking about reporting and everything else. So I think it's just the overall level of seriousness, how you operationalize is up to you in your organization. But it's becoming a bit of a, a table stakes and an early observation point for no C new CFOs to understand whether the organization as a whole is taking ESG seriously. So, Anker, why don't you bring us home with the last mindset, which is all about talent? Yeah, so I think the last one, and I would argue most important one, is talent. And uh, that comes, of course, with a transition moment with your ability to redesign and set your team. And you cannot you cannot rely on the chief HR officer or the predecessor selection of the team. You have to form a view of the team you have. And I talk to my clients about having a portfolio view of, of talent. You will you not need superstars for each and every role. You'll probably need some utility players in some roles. You'll need uh, some really strong talent in some key roles. So having a clear view on the talent to value, where which roles are going to drive disproportionate impact, which roles will probably be table stakes, I think that's quite important. And I think um, the way you construct the team will set the tone of how the function will probably perform. And you have probably three to six months to do that. And uh, linking it back to our bias for comment, bias for action comment, I think this way probably bias for action is required. And then lastly, I think it also links back to diversity and inclusion. It's it's it's. It, I firmly believe that having a diverse and inclusive team is quite important for the CFO to bring all the voices uh, into the CFO dis decision, and you can set the tone by constructing your team proactively with the right talent linked to the right value drivers with the right athlete. I would add one thing on talent that beyond your own team, at least in the case of our business, it's our single largest expense item by significant margin. So all things related to talent are, are very much in the wheelhouse of the CFO, in my view, and, and it ends up being an area that I spend a, a, a significant amount of time on. And the head of people or uh Chief people officer ends up being one of your most important relationships if 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 the if the function is is performing well. Okay, so now that we've covered all seven principles, I'd like to close off with a couple final questions. First, about um, how a new group CFO 
might differ from a new CFO. In other words, a group CFO with other CFOs reporting to them. Um, how do you align with those other finance leaders in terms of the scope of responsibility at the start of your tenure? It is a great question, Sean. I'll attempt it. Um, I think it starts with scoping the challenge, the first one, which is if you have a clear perspective on what and where will drive value, and you have aligned that with the top management team, including the board, I think that will, at the outset, make your task much, much more easier. Inevitably, in an organization, especially in a multi-BU organization, there'll be negotiation for resources. But if you have the North Star on what will drive value, specific, well-defined, well-articulated, well-aligned, I think you will probably get those, uh, you'll be probably able to navigate those discussions. I think the second probably is trust building based on relationship. We have talked about a lot of the IQ aspects of the role, but the RQ aspects of the role, building relationship and trust-based relationship with the business unit had, I would argue, goes is an even important aspect of the CFO role. Over-investing in building trust will, of course, help you in making those choices and helping under business unit understands when those choices are made. I just want to build on one thing, Sean, and, and this the relationship between the CFO and the CEO. Um, you know, we're going to spend we're spending a lot of time uh, as a firm on that on that relationship as we've d uh, dug deeper into CEO excellence uh, and what that looks like. I think establishing that relationship, that trust early, the role, the scope, and having that. We talked about it also in terms of board relationships, right, earlier. I think the health of that relationship and defining it and being symbiotic as opposed to, to, to two, you know, executive figures that stand next to each other, I think is a really, really cru uh, critical and crucial topic. Um, we'll spend more time on that, but, but kind of more to come. But I think it's a really important theme uh, for CFOs to think about. Thanks so much, everyone. Uh, question for you, Lauren. Do any of the seven mindsets and practices we've discussed today particularly stand out for you based on your experience? I think the mindset or practice on this list that resonates most with me right now is, is the teach and translate. I think I used to think that I could help operators become bilingual between financial language and operating language. And what I've come to recognize is that it's a lot more effective for me and my team to be the translators of relevant financial information into, into their language rather than expecting them to speak mine. That enables you to get much greater influence in the organization because you can help them understand how their actions impact the financial performance of the business. And I don't mean just the P&L, it's also the balance sheet and the cash flow statement, things like cash conversion. Once they understand that, people want to work on activities that are important and impact the performance of the business. And so as the CFO, if I could help them understand how their work can have impact, I think that can expand my influence because that's going to ultimately lead to product development roadmaps and resource allocation that's highly aligned with the initiatives that will get us the best financial performance. So uh, I think that piece is really the one that resonates the most. Also thinking about how to adapt my modes of communication for the different audiences that you have to interact with. The board and the investors have a different level of financial sophistication versus the total company. And so I think that's really the one that um, I'm going to take with me today and, and, and focus on in the year to come. Thanks so much, Lauren. And Andy, we're going to give you the last word. Any closing thoughts you'd like to share? I get the last word. Look, I, I think we are in a moment. And so in the world, period, I think the between macroeconomic change, geopolitics, 
between what's happening with technology. Uh, I think it is time, and this is a moment for the CFO to lead, period. This is going to be about being agile, about resource reallocation. And so it's probably somewhere under scoping the uh, challenge and adopting a bias for action. But I think making sense of the world and how it relates to what's happening inside an organization is the CFO's mandate. And I think it is an unparalleled time for that. So I, I would say setting the right aspiration and acting as that translator uh, in order to keep you know organizations moving forward and making the decisions they need to make to succeed. Well, thank you all so much for joining us today and sharing all your insights. Ankur, Christian, Andy, and Lauren, it's been a real pleasure. Appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Sean. Thanks. Thank you. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us today. As always, if you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, just email us at itsr at mckinsey.com. You can also share your ratings and reviews on your favorite podcast player. And we'd like to thank all of the people who've already done so. We really appreciate all the comments and feedback you've shared. Please do keep them coming. And if you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to subscribe, you can follow our weekly series on your favorite podcast player, where you can also access our entire library of previous episodes. We also offer an Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page, which is available at mckinsey.com slash ITSR. And there you can easily search our prior podcasts across six major themes and access written transcripts of all of those conversations. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest publications and insights, sign up on our practice insights page at mckinsey.com slash SCF, that's for strategy and corporate finance, or follow us on Twitter at MCK strategy, or connect with us on LinkedIn at the McKinsey strategy and corporate finance practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again next week inside the strategy room.